This episode of The Green Rush is brought to you by Heffernan Insurance Brokers. For a long time, cannabis companies have been shut out of many financial and insurance opportunities. That has now changed as cannabis companies have an option that can change their company's bottom line. Berkshire Hathaway is exclusively partnered with Heffernan Insurance Brokers, and the first work comp dividend program for businesses in the cannabis industry is now available nationwide. Rates that are filed in states across the U.S. can receive up to 40% of your premium back. So if you're an MSO that would like to have the potential to receive premium back on your work comp, give Kevin Tarango at Heffernan Insurance Brokers a ring at 415-699-2022 or go to hefcan.com. That's H-E-F-F-C-A-N-N.com. Support Heffernan Insurance Brokers' efforts to strengthen the cannabis community and revolutionize how cannabis companies buy work comp insurance. Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts and Anaho and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Ann and Nick are joined by Bethany Gomez, Managing Director and Co-Founder of Brightfield Group, a leading consumer insights and market intelligence SaaS platform for cannabis, CBD, and the emerging wellness industries. In this episode, Ann and Nick talk with Bethany about the importance of market research in the cannabis space and how to successfully leverage client use data. Bethany also explains how understanding cannabis consumers and aligning with their cultural identity is the key to building a successful cannabis brand. She also discusses Brightfield's EverG wellness platform, which combines consumer insights, social listening, expert analysis, and more. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Bethany Gomez of Brightfield Group. Bethany Gomez, Managing Director and Co-Founder of Brightfield Group. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. So to kick things off, we always like our guests to kind of introduce themselves and, and introduce us to, you know, how did you become part of the cannabis industry and what ultimately led to you co-founding Brightfield? Yeah. So my background prior to helping start this company was in emerging market market research, right? Um, I really consider myself a, a methodologist as a, a researcher and always like to kind of take the most interesting strategic you know, approaches on calculating and um, attacking really difficult, messy markets and um, helping to you know, provide the best research methodologies to cover those. So previously, I used to work with um, companies covering um, emerging markets in Africa. Um, prior to this, I helped um, analyze and you know, manage a team looking at um, emerging CPG markets in Latin America um, in particular. Um, so things like alcohol, um, food, uh, tobacco, beverages, et cetera. Um, so that gave me kind of that, that background and that approach and that kind of zest for, you know, looking at emerging markets. And, you know, back in 2015, when we started to see the cannabis industry emerging here today, it was 
absolutely fascinating. And I knew that this was going to be a once in a generation industry that we really wanted to, you know, from the ground floor, be able to really understand, um, you know, not only what was happening, but why was it happening? Um, you know, from working with companies in all sorts of emerging markets, we understand, I knew that the why was even more important than what was happening because what was happening was going to change any, you know, change on a dime. So, um, that was really, you know, what really attracted to me to the industry. Um, you know, back in 2015, my uh, co-founder Patrick Hayden, um, who had worked with me at um, Euromonitor at a previous um, previous company, had you know had the opportunity. He was working with an investment office that had the opportunity to make an investment in the cannabis space, and looked around in 2014, 2015, 15, there wasn't much in the way of good data to help that make a good decision. Um, so, and they really. Saw an opportunity in the market there um, and then brought me in to help, you know, turn that idea into kind of a, a company and a research uh, research platform. We, um, are, you know, a lot of our listeners um, are uh, investors, you know, on the on the retail side. So I think they're very used to um, to using data to drive their decisions. But, you know, a lot of that data, you know, is financial data. Um, but I'm wondering if you can maybe talk about how, um, you know, how important market research is and how these companies, your clients, um, you know, use that data in order to, um, to help their businesses. Absolutely. So as we look at the cannabis industry, this is really, it's really evolving from something that was a commodity that was sold in a baggie on the street, you know, a decade, you know, yeah. a decade ago, and even not even that long. That's still happening, but yeah. It's <laughs> in many places. But going from kind of a, a pure commodity kind of sold on the, um, you know, on the illicit market to the consumer packaged goods industry. And, you know, while I think a lot of people will, you know, say that it already is CPG, you know, as you look at cannabis, it's on that evolution right now. It's on kind of that trajectory um, to, you know, to evolve in that direction. And as it does, the development of more sophisticated products and the development of brands that really matter to consumers is really what's going to be critical to, you know, the success of any company over the longer term. You know, if consumers, all of, you know, the first mover advantages in the world don't mean anything if you can't hold on to it. If consumers don't care about your brand and they don't care about who you are. So, you know, in the cannabis industry, you know, we are, you know, really in about, you know, third, fourth inning, you know, here in terms of that, you know, that evolution or development from kind of that baggie into, you know, full on CPG. But consumers, you know, developing brands that matter to consumers are really the the most important struggle right now for brands as they want to kind of build that positioning and solidify that positioning. So that's really what our clients, you know, really look to do you know, both to use our consumer data, you know, our marketers are kind of our, our core clients will use our consumer data to help really understand those consumers, not only what are they buying, but why are they buying it? What do they care about to look forward and think about how to position their brand in a way that's going to make sense for that, you know, that consumer, how to develop products, how to develop kind of their longer term strategies in a way that's in alignment with, you know, their consumer, that consumer, and, you know, be able to think long term in that way. And then to be able to evaluate, 
is what they're doing working, right? And that's really what we, you know, why we released our brand health platform, you know, into um, the U.S. cannabis market here is to give marketers that toolkit to assess, you know, is what I'm doing working, you know, mm-hmm. so that you can continue to invest, you know, your dollars most wisely, particularly in difficult markets um, where you don't have a lot of wiggle room there. I, I want to just ask a follow-up there because we hear from brands all the time about how hard it is to build because you're building in these siloed markets. You know, um, you either have a really crowded market like California or you have a market like New York, like getting, trying to get off the ground. Um, do you find that, um, that, that your clients are coming to you with similar problems? Like is, is, um, your, are your New York clients the same as your Missouri clients? The same? Like, is everyone just having this struggle or is it very state specific in your opinion? So there's a bit of a nuance, definitely. You're hitting the nail on the head that the West Coast is a bit of a different beast than the East Coast, right? Um, And that there's these very saturated West Coast markets, which are, you know, on the one side, they're kind of the incubators for innovation because it's a lot, you know, it's easier for small brands to kind of nip at the ankles or eat away share from those larger players. Um, there's, it's a lot easier to bring products to market um, just from a, you know, capital overhead standpoint. And so there's so many brands in the market that makes it really difficult to stick out in the minds of consumers. We've also, remember our first brand health study we did in California, we found also consumers were overwhelmingly satisfied. It turns out that California has really good weed. <laughs> and if, what that means is- Who would have thought? If all of it is good, (laughs) then how are consumers making those decisions? And that's, you know, that's the challenging part for, you know, for brands out on the West Coast. It's they've gotten over that quality hurdle. They've gotten over there. The market is flooded with fantastic products, amazing products that, you know, the rest of the world is just drooling over. But, you know, to make your brand count and to be able to be successful, you have to you know connect beyond just that, you know, price point or just that, you know, um, you know, that product description, you know, you really need to develop that relationship with your consumers. Now in East coast markets or brand new markets, we often hear in brand, brand new markets that people are saying, well, I just need to be able to get product yourself. I'm like, yes, that's correct. When your market first opens up, get a product to market. If there's a supply shortage, you have to get to product to market and that product will generally yeah. sell. Once you overcome your supply challenges, then you have to actually compete in markets. And then you have to, you know, look at, you know, that's when you really need to make your brand strategy successful because you're competing against all these other brands. And most of those East Coast markets are dominated by MSOs, right? That have, you know, and those MSOs, what they do is they go to the West Coast and they pick up the best brands from the West Coast and then they go sell them into those new markets. So when you do that, you're while well, you aren't competing with as many brands as the Californians are, you know, then you're still competing with some of the best brands from, you know, from the West Coast and oftentimes, you know, up against companies that have more resources, you know, depending on mm-hmm. who the, the brand is, may have um, more resources behind it and, you know, distribution benefit. So, you know, regardless of which market you're in, you know, as of developing that brand and really making it count is kind of the going to be kind of the the most important thing for you know the success of these companies you know in the consumer packaged goods you know as cannabis becomes consumer packaged goods the brand is the most important part 
I want to reference a couple of things that that you said that really stood out to me. First was like that that brands that matter to consumers. I think that is such Mm -hmm. a shift from where we were a couple of years ago where, like you were just saying, it's get product to market more so than, you know, who's going to end up being the Coca-Cola and stuff. But um, it used to be weed in a jar. Like you didn't know what it was. It was like, we think this is Indica. We think this is Sativa. So like there was no, when I first moved out here, there was no such thing as brand. Yeah. There was, yep. it, it was whatever I could get what was available. But you also said we're in the third and the fourth inning. And I think you're the first guest that said that we're beyond the first or second <laughs> inning, which yeah. feels like progress for the industry. So Absolutely. I really appreciated you saying that. Yeah, well, I, I agree. Mean, to your point, you know, I mean, I started looking at this 2015 when we were covering brands, there was like no such thing as branded flower. Like the idea of branded flower was... Yeah. You know, we didn't even when we were first tracking, you know, brands, we didn't even bother trying to put together brand shares for flour because it was just like all mostly all unbranded, you know, you know, gummies and vapes had some level of that there. But I mean, at that point in time, there was not the same level of scrutiny and processes and development, you know, that were going into these products. I mean, they were one step, even at that point, they were one step, you know, beyond people kind of coming up with formulations in their basement, right? Um, And then whatever was good, you know, taking that to market. So we have come a really long way since then. Um, You know, there's been some, you know, you know, as you look at the infrastructure that's built up at these companies, the degree to which, you know, many of these companies are really taking their product development seriously. They're taking their supply chain seriously. They've hired, many of them have hired very serious marketers with strong credentials, um, you know, that have, you know, backgrounds from CPG or from other, you know, emerging markets. Um, And they're, you know, really scaling up their operations. Um, But the market, you know, some of them oftentimes, overcorrect to the level of like thinking about it exactly the same way as a CPG industry and cannabis is not there yet. Um, you know, it just isn't there and not in the minds of the consumers. Um, and the consumers are very different, you know, for weed than they are for chocolate, you know, um, or than you would for breakfast cereal, you know, I mean, not always, but yeah, Yeah. (laughs) but the way that consumers, you know, I think the, not that cannabis consumers don't eat chocolate or don't eat, you know, breakfast cereal, but I think that there has been a lot of a push towards trying to sanitize cannabis and make it just like every other, you know, consumer packaged goods industry and really kind of steamrolling over the fact that there's a huge cultural connection with cannabis that does not exist in CP, you know, in CPG, most CPG industries. Nobody cares about their breakfast cereal and considers that as much part of their identity as most you know, as a large percentage of cannabis consumers do, right? Not everyone, you know, it's a, you know, um, but cannabis fits into so many people's lives in a much more meaningful way, you know, and in their identities in a more meaningful way, you know, than most, you know, most other industries do. And, you know, there were many companies that kind of tried to skip over that legacy consumer and just shotgun for, you know, the mass markets, and ignored kind of that very, you know, large and very valuable consumer segment, you know, in the middle, if that makes sense. Uh, And I want to stick on that because I I think those are very salient points with sanitizing the industry and Mm -hmm. changing up the identity of everyone. Because one thing that we haven't talked about yet is the thriving illicit market that still exists Mm -hmm. in a lot of these states. Um, You know, for someone's identity that, you know, maybe has, has been a consumer of cannabis for, for decades, 
they now see, you know, these more corporate MSOs, finance bros mm-hmm. running these dispensaries and stuff, and they don't mm-hmm. want to necessarily contribute to that, but it's not really accessible for them to maybe get some of the smaller brands or the price points still don't compete with what's mm-hmm. going on in the illicit market. I know we're seeing mm-hmm. this a lot in, in New York and, you know, it's, it's creating confusion for cu- customers, but it's also, you know, how do you break away from that legacy, you know, operation, those relationships that they already had for these brands to now have to try and establish new ones that are, you know, yes, they're legal, but I know when I was paying before that money went right into my dealer's pocket and he could keep mm-hmm. growing and doing all that where this is going to a bigger behemoth. So how do legal operators navigate the illicit competition that they have to face? Yeah. I mean, that is, that is the big question, particularly in California and is coming up right now in, you know, in New York to be sure. I think there's, you know, a level of um, both kind of confusion, you know, there's, several different layers to what you're hitting on there. You know, on the one side, what we see in New York is a lot of confusion about consumers just not even knowing what's legal and what isn't legal. Um, And, you know, whether what they're shopping, what they're buying um, through these retailers that are just popping up all over New York, um, New York City are actual recreational dispensaries or not. Um, We see that come up. I mean, we ran a survey in Q4 before the first recreational dispensary opened up and found that 70% of consumers thought that they had bought from the recreational market. (laughs) It's like, okay, you know, you go in and you talk to these people and they'll say, oh yeah, it's legal here now, right? It's like, that's how that works. Yeah. Yes, and... (laughs) doesn't mean that this is, right? Um, So there's a lot of confusion popping up there. There's a lot of confusion popping up and, um, you know, and whether consumers really care, right? Um, If they can walk into a store and they can buy cannabis, um, do they care whether that store is illicit or not, if they can buy the same kinds of products? And really, it's the job of the brands at this point, you know, while certainly, you know, everybody can complain about it from a regulatory standpoint um, and, you know, really can and should, you know, work to try to get the these kind of illicit market dispensaries shut down. But really, it's the marketer's job to convince people why they should buy from their, you know, their company, right? You know, better quality products, better selection, better, you know, whatever you want to, you know, to go out with safer products, you Mm -hmm. know, there's, you know, a lot of benefits to buying from these legal markets, you know, supporting the legal market um, so that people don't go into, you know, jail and you can fund these equity projects and, you know, you can ensure you're kind of on the right side of pushing towards legalization. There's a lot of great, you know, positions that people will be receptive to, you know, people can be receptive to, but that's, that's marketing, right? Um, And, you know, it's the same with competing with the Delta 8 market, which I know is going to be, you know, another thing that we want to talk about. But there's, you know, those products are great, widely available. They're oftentimes a lot cheaper, you know, than regulated cannabis. That makes it difficult for brands in the market. It makes it very difficult for brands in the market. That's the hand that you've got right now. So that's, marketing, right? You have to convince your consumers why they should buy from you and not from these other people, right? Whether those are other dispensaries or regulated dispensaries or whether that's the illicit market. And understanding them is, you know, is one part of it. Um, And really aligning with kind of the cultural identity of a lot of these consumers and why they're using cannabis. I mean, this is why cookies is just exploding. And we see so much success, you know, from their brand is they're not trying to sanitize it, you know, for better or worse 
you know, they're not trying mm-hmm. to synthesize it. They're trying to align with the cultural identity of, you know, of the, you know, cannabis industry. And as a result are seeing, you know, incredible success in terms of customer loyalty, of brand loyalty, brand For recognition. Sure. Yeah. Um, still some, you know, plenty of brand confusion around there. They're, you know, still relatively early innings, but, um, you know, that just that strategy has been very successful and, you know, capturing that, you know, that kind of heart and soul of, you know, some of, um, you know, cannabis consumers, hearts and minds of some, many of those cannabis consumers and can compete more successfully, you know, with the black market there. I have, I, I definitely want to jump over to the, to the other cannabinoids like Delta eight, but I just had one last follow up on this because, you know, Ann and I are always talking with, with different brands around like, you know, uh, what, what matters to their consumers and what, what are these initiatives? And one thing that I think can comes up is like when it comes to equity or sustainability in these, these different, you know, what do the brands stand for? From your end, when you're looking at the the data from like what what gets consumers interested, how important is that kind of stuff with equity or sustainability or even just, um, you know, different types of packaging that is is better? Like how much does that stuff really play a role ultimately in building that brand loyalty? So we see that sustainability is something that consumers, some segments of consumers care about. but the big question is, if you ask anybody, do you care about sustainability? They will yeah. say yes. Right? <laughs> if you yeah. ask somebody, are they going to, where does that rank in terms of their you know, list of priorities or their attributes? Um, it's pretty low on the list. You know, as I run through, you know, some of our um, inf- uh, some of our data around purchase influencer attributes, you know, the dosage level, price, taste, flavor, value, strain, you know, is much higher in the you know in the equation for consumers, you know, than you know whether it was made without pesticides or whether it's organic, whether it was made with you know sustainable you know profiles. There, there's also a lot of lack of clarity from consumers on which brands really are sustainable, which brands really are, you know, um, you know, are supporting those equity initiatives. I think a lot of people are paying a lot of lip service to it right now. Um, And it's still, you know, there's a relatively small number of them that are, you know, some of the larger ones that are really kind of remaining, um, uh, truly authentic or following through on a lot of these, you know, initiatives. Now, a lot of them are tied up with regulatory bodies. Certainly I live in Illinois where, you know, the social equity program has been, you know, just delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. Um, but I think those are things that, you know, people like to hear about, but we don't see them making kind of huge impacts on the, um, you know, on the purchasing of, you know, the, that attribute and that attribute alone being something that a lot of consumers are making decisions based off of at this time. You know, when we talk about um, brand and brand loyalty and, and you know, uh, um, the sanitization, maybe, I, I really did like that word because it does seem that way. Um, and there's so much education that still needs to be done. So, you know, I get phone calls from like 
my aunt or, you know, people who are like, oh, well, what is good for sleep? What is good for anxiety? What is good for X, Y, Z? Um, so there is still so much education that needs to be done. And now, you know, as the technology gets better, as, you know, these other minor cannabinoids and, and terpenes and, and, you know, those things are being explored further, um, you know, how the, the fact that, you know, in your um, recently published uh uh, data, you showed that a, a major, majorly Delta 8 THC product was a $2 billion market over the last two years, which is banana pants to me because uh, it is, it is something that is so misunderstood or uh, like, uh, and so much education still needs to be done. But the fact that people are buying blows my mind. So uh, can you talk a little bit about what what this market is like and, and maybe the threat of this market to the, the traditional cannabis market. Absolutely. Well, Delta 8 and, you know, really in that 2 billion, we're lumping together all of the, um, you know, hemp derived THC products, you know, have really grown up around kind of the lack of clarity in that 2018 farm bill, right? Yeah. You know, which said for those that aren't familiar with kind of the, the details or the fine print of it, anything 0.3% THC and above is considered marijuana. Anything 0.3% THC and below is considered hemp. And so hemp is legal covered under the, you know, the, um, the agriculture, you know, department, anything above is still federally illegal covered under the DEA but that's based off of flour, right? Um, now you can still within that 0.3% THC, you can do a lot of manipulations to that product to get that THC content um, within a you know final product up pretty high. And, you know, so we really saw this market, you know, Delta 8 start to explode um, about, you know, two years ago, you know, it kind of came out of nowhere as CBD was starting to, you know, starting to flatline a bit or starting to, you know, run into some challenges mid pandemic with kind of regulatory channels um, or additional distribution channels still closed, but a lot of extra supply um, of hemp sitting around. And so, you know, these Delta 8 products started to hit market and immediately we track social listening, just the volume of conversations around Delta 8 just spiked, right? You know, the end of 2021, um, there it was skyrocketing. And then all of a sudden, these products started to make their way to the shelves of smoke and vape shops all across the country, um, you know, into, you know, many of the, which was really the channel that started the CBD craze, um, you know, to begin with. So they started being sold at smoke and vape shops. They started being sold at, you know, C stores, independent retailers, CBD stores. We started started to see a lot of the CBD stores start to masquerade themselves as dispensaries. You know, we see about half of, you know, more than half of CBD consumers buy from dispensaries. And, you know, when you actually look at those dispensaries, most of them are not regulated cannabis dispensaries. They're, you know, quote unquote dispensaries that are selling THC and C, you know, or Delta 8 hemp derived THC and CBD products. But you know, most consumers don't understand the difference. Uh, so this really exploded throughout 2022. And we saw, you know, a bit of a whack-a-mole from a regulation standpoint, you know, as some states would ban certain, you know, Delta 8, but they didn't ban Delta 10. 
they didn't ban THCO, they didn't ban HHC. So, you know, you could just knock one out and just keep on trucking to the next ones. And, you know, there was nothing to really stop them from doing that. Um, Meanwhile, the face of the CBD consumer has really shifted, you know, from somebody who wouldn't touch cannabis with a 10 foot pole um, but this is CBD, this is different, you know, they, you know, the CBD is now really being seen by the majority of CBD consumers as an extension of their cannabis usage, you know, and we see more than 35% of CBD consumers are now purchasing hemp-derived THC products as well. So there's certainly a lot of, you know, that there's certainly a lot of consumers that are starting to turn to these products, use these products on a more regular basis. You know, 30% of cannabis consumers in legal markets reported using hemp-derived THC products also. Um, So while it's higher in states like, you know, in the South, for example, those rates are higher in the South than they are in, you know, the West Coast or the Northeast where regulated cannabis is widely available, but not by that much. I mean, we're still seeing, um, you know, very happy usage amongst the West Coast, you know, the Northeast, you know, the Midwest, um, and, you know, just the accessibility, um, the lower price points, you know, the ability to buy online, the ability to buy at a smoke shop um, is really attractive to consumers. And if they don't understand the difference or why they shouldn't, um, you know, then why would they? And that's, you know, really the threat that, um, you know, both CBD and, you know, the regulated THC industry is, you know, is facing from Delta 8 right now. I I think you touched on a lot of interesting things. And as you were, were talking there, Bethany, one of the things that kind of struck me was for, compared to where we were like a decade ago, medical marijuana really was the driver, I think, for mm-hmm. introducing states and getting people comfortable with the idea of cannabis being in their community. Yeah. And now we're seeing all these CBD shops. We're seeing the Delta 8. Mm-hmm. Has, has CBD and Delta 8 replaced medical marijuana in terms of like, how do you get consumers on your side to ultimately get that regulated market? Are we just like skipping the medical marijuana step like going forward? That's a really interesting, you know, perspective there. And I think there's, there could be a lot of concern about that, um, a lot of very legitimate concern about that. You know, if you think about a lot of the legalization movements that have pushed forward, um, you know, cannabis usage and cannabis legalization, if many of those consumers are feeling satiated by their options, (laughs) then they may be a lot less, you know, a lot less likely to push for it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, both on the adult use standpoint, if people are happy with their Delta 8 products and they don't necessarily want to buy from the legal market, then, um, you know, the regulated cannabis market, then they may be less likely to push for legalization initiatives. Um, if people, you know, if medical patients are feeling, you know, satiated with the CBD products available to them, then that could be a concern. Now, with that being said, I do think that, you know, there is when it comes to like true medical patients that are using, you know, cannabis um, for, you know, their more serious health conditions, um, that is, you know, something that, you know, there's a lot of concerns, you know, there's more rigorous research around what is included in your products, what is, you know, safe for you to use in higher dosages. And, you know, there are a lot of legitimate safety concerns around, you know, Delta 8, around, you know, the, um, you know, around the hemp-derived THC industry. Um, You know, 
So it is, you know, there's a bit on both sides, you know, there. And, you know, I think that um, there's, uh, but that it definitely could um, have an impact on, you know, future legalization efforts. But yeah, the government just, will certainly still want to have a piece of that uh, taxation pie. Um, oh, yeah. I was just thinking, and- like, <laughs> as you were talking about the South, it's like, you know, are these states really going to ever have a robust medical marijuana program? It's I think you you can see the acceptance from a consumer standpoint. It's like, well, you know, I get a lot from the Delta eight. Like, this is fine. This hasn't you know messed up me or my community or anything like that. We, we're good for, for recreational or adult use to, to come yeah. in. Like That's just so, so different than I think. I think Missouri was kind of like maybe the last state right now that has like a, a had a, a mm-hmm. medical program that's now being shifted over. And mm-hmm. like I could see, you know, the, the Mississippi's, the Alabama's and, and all that doing it, doing it a different way. Right. And I think, you know, medical marijuana is still very widely accepted and it's still very, mm-hmm. you know, much easier to get through, you know, to get those regulations through, you know, so I, I, I do see there's still being opportunities for more states to turn that over. But I do think, you know, what we saw in the last election cycle of, you know, cannabis legalization hitting that red wall um, and a lot of pushback, you know, from conservatives against cannabis legalization. If conservatives are adamantly pushing back against, you know, recreational and a lot of the consumers can get cheap Delta 8 anyway, how hard are they going to work for it? How hard are they going to push for it? And, you know, we may not see every state, you know, I've, I've been saying this for some time that, you know, I think when we, when we do see finally get to a day of, you know, federal legalization, that doesn't necessarily mean that Mississippi is going to want their own rec market. And it doesn't necessarily mean Mm -hmm. that Alabama or Iowa or, you know, or many of these very, you know, or Arkansas even are going to want these markets um, and are going to, you know, push them through. And I think this hodgepodge that we're seeing right now just kind of fuller, further complicates that. Um, So I think all eyes, when it comes to Delta 8, I've, I've certainly got my eye on the 2023 farm bill and see what is happening there, because that will really determine, you know, at this point, that's going to determine the future of CBD and it's going to determine the future of Delta 8, I think, um, and the impact it'll have on the the cannabis industry as well. I want to kind of shift to, you know, we're, we're talking about medical and, um, this this weird gray area that that Delta Eight is hanging out in. Um, but, so let's talk about the the Evergy Wellness platform and why you guys have decided to expand um, the broader wellness industry. What are the the additional trends you're seeing as they relate to cannabis um, in in as it relates to cannabis in the wellness category? I'm using air quotes. I don't mean that though. I yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, yeah. I think um, you know. The concept of wellness is a very interesting one, right? Because what what constitutes wellness? You know, when you look at cannabis, it's, you know, you get the question of is cannabis a vice product or is cannabis a wellness product? And, you know, when you think about the way that people use cannabis, you know, is for well, some of these are for very specific medical purposes, um, you know, and some of these are just straight up for fun purposes. But there's a lot of this in between ground where people. Mm-hmm. Or relaxation, right? Now, 
there's a lot of things people can use for relaxation. That could be cannabis. That could be a glass of wine. That could be, you know, a, an a adaptogen capsule. It could be a gummy, you know, a, a supplements gummy. Um, but that kind of need state in that use case, you know, is something that benefits somebody's mental health or they're using for, you know, a specific, um, specific need state there. Um, now, when we first started to look at, to open up and release our, you know, Evergy platform, this was based off of us working with a lot of the innovation departments, you know, at both CBD companies, cannabis companies, as well as the bigger CPG companies that had come to us, you know, to help with, um, for help with CBD and cannabis and really wanting to understand where does cannabis and CBD fit into this larger landscape of products, um, and where does this fit into kind of the larger mindset of consumers, you know, around their attitudes towards products? You know, I had a client, we were working with a client recess, you know, early on that were saying, I may be a CBD beverage, but I don't compete just with CBD beverages. I compete in the relaxation category. So I want to see how I'm doing against, you know, all of the relaxation beverages, or I want to see how I'm doing against magnesium capsules, or I want to see how I'm doing against all of these, you know, other areas. Areas. So it was kind of with that in mind that we released this product to understand, you know, beyond just somebody's relationship with cannabis, um, what are their behaviors, their attitudes, their lifestyle, um, and their approaches to that lifestyle that, you know, are going to help drive kind of their product use and their product selection. Um, so, you know, we as part of our Evergy platform, we look at, you know, extensive consumer survey work that, you know, digs into those behaviors and attitudes um, and usage of products really across different formats. Uh, we also look at social listening. So we dive really deep into, you know, conversations around wellness so we can see you know, what need states are trending, what new ingredients are trending, what new flavors and products are up and coming. Um, and, you know, this kind of holistic picture, then we have our, you know, analyst support on this, that our analyst, you know, commentary that pulls all these different data sources together, um, looks at this alongside search data, alongside kind of our, you know, our social media integrations on our consumers to really understand a 360 degree view of where this fits into your lifestyle. And, you know, we, when we look at some trends that are coming at the market, we can see some real societal shifts that are coming with Gen Z, you know, for example. And, you know, as you look at that Gen Z consumer, it's not just that they're using cannabis. Young people have always used cannabis. It's always been kind of a, a you know, a bigger, um, you know, percentage of consumers. And then historically, they've kind of aged out of that. So, um, you know, everybody smokes weed in college. Is it something that they're going to kind of continue in the future? But when we look at, you know, a lot of those deeper attitudinal and behavioral, um, you know, attitudes about this first generation that has come of age in the era of legal cannabis, for example, we can see that there's many behavioral factors that are influencing, you know, those decisions that make us believe that this is going to be a trend that is going to, you know, really solidify in the future. Um, you know, their attitudes towards alcohol are very different from, you know, millennials and from Gen X. Uh, and we've seen, you know, that uh, Gen Z is much more likely to consider alcohol to be terrible for their, you know, for their health. And not just, they're not usually actually going to cannabis beverages in particular as a substitute, but they're going to cannabis as a substitute. Mm -hmm. And this is actually even more prevalent amongst Gen Z women than it is amongst men, you know, and, you know, 10 years ago to say that the dominant, you know, gender category in cannabis is women would have been a 
blown everybody's mind, right? Um, since the industry was so male dominated and male driven. Um, but these Gen Z women are really kind of coming up with this mentality of really embracing cannabis over alcohol. Um, and, you know, it also impacts a lot of their other purchasing decisions. They don't like potato chips either. You know, there's a lot of, you know, other more likely to embrace a plant-based diet or, you know, or plant-based, um, you know, chips and snacks and, you know, things like that. Their demographics are very different. You know, also we see these massive shifts in, you know, in terms of gender identity that is, you know, not really being talked about to the level that, you know, it probably should for anybody who's trying to develop a brand for the long term. Well, that's um, really interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, the just the, you know, could talk about that all day, but the the percentage of consumers that identify as other, you know, um, right. not male nor female has just exploded when you look at the, you know, the Gen Z population. Now it's still a very small base, you know, that it's growing from, but it's, you know, just in one generation become, you know, completely, you know, much more accepted um, and just part of the landscape, you know, the LGBTQA, um, you know, community, again, the percentage of consumers that identify with that has, you know, just skyrocketed with that, you know, with that generation. And so it's a, it's a different, you know, there's been some generational mindset, you know, shifts both, you know, even you know, just from a, um, a demographic standpoint, but how cannabis fits into their lifestyles too, that, you know, while that this should be a lot more important than a lot of brands as they're developing these products, because, you know, these consumers are aging into this legal market and younger consumers typically buy a lot, you know, of, of cannabis anyway, but they're, you know, you're catching them fresh when they don't have brand loyalty. They don't have previous, um, you know, previous perceptions of illicit market behaviors and, you know, things like that. Um, so it's with these types of mentalities, you know, that this is the type of insight that you're able to gain from looking bigger, right, at some of these, you know, these bigger trends um, and where does cannabis fit into those, um, you know, as a marketer or a brand or a strategist, you know, within the market. I, I, I want to stick on this real quick because um, we, we just got a couple more questions for you, Bethany. But I think it, it, something you were hitting on there that really stuck out to me was, you know, not only the Gen Z part and, and you know, how they just think differently than, than past generations, but the societal shift that's been happening and, and within all that wellness conversation has, you know, especially something Anne and I have seen is is on the the, the psychedelics and the, the revamping mm-hmm. of what therapy and mental health means to, to mm-hmm. folks and how they're, you know, trying to use purchasing decisions when it comes Mm -hmm. into that and going to ketamine clinics or volunteering to be part of um, these uh, clinical trials, working with psilocybin, LSD, Mm -hmm. MDMA, all those things. So I know Brightfield Group has started um, to track Mm -hmm. um, consumer trends and insights. And so we cover psychedelics on this podcast as well. So I'd Mm -hmm. love to hear from you, you know, what's the overlap look like when it comes to cannabis and psychedelics from your end? Yeah. So, I mean, on the high level, what draws people to psychedelics from, you know, there's what draws people to psychedelics and what draws people to cannabis. There's a lot of overlap there, particularly in the areas of mental health, you know, now with both psychedelics and with cannabis, there are some people that are using this for fun. And, you know, there are some people that are using this for, you know, serious mental health issues or serious health issues. And then there's a lot of people who are using this for kind of that middle zone of kind of wellness or spirituality. Right. And, you know, with some of the things that cannabis is used for, especially from a medical standpoint, you know, are, you know, from a 
are really fall into the realm of either kind of emotional relief or physical relief. Now, cannabis does far and away better for physical relief, right? Um, you know, most products, chronic pain, you know, is one of the, the top conditions, you know, that people use cannabis for and that, you know, cannabis is, is a pretty clear, you know, pull away or pretty clear winner there, uh, you know, versus psychedelics. But there's especially since, you know, the um, the pandemic hit, but, you know, really throughout, um, you know, the course, since we've been tracking data, certainly Cannabis users come to the plant uh, for anxiety relief, for depression, for insomnia, um, you know, for PTSD. Now, you know, for certain specific conditions in there, um, you know, psychedelics is being uh, leveraged. There's a lot of clinical trials, you know, going on or, you know, a lot of, you know, more work targeting those with PTSD, for example, or some very, you know, specific deep um you know, deeper and severe um, mental health conditions um, for which psychedelics can be very, very beneficial. Where the mass of the market is, is this, you know, 40 plus percent of cannabis consumers that use for anxiety, that use for depression. Um, depression is also something when you look at the and when you're looking at this Gen Z community, um, you know, mental health is, you know, becoming more and more important as a real epidemic, you know, facing and particularly younger consumers, um, you know, in America today who are much more open to getting help for mental health purposes. Um, so we do see a lot of overlap there. You know, right now we see um, about 9% of American adults uh, report using some psychedelics. Um, over the past six months, um, this is 16% of cannabis consumers. So you can see cannabis consumers are much more likely to be trying, you know, these products or using these products. Um, certainly the heaviest level of overlap in terms of reasons for use fall into this kind of anxiety, you know, this depression, um, as well as fun, you know, um, and kind of relaxation, which, you know, you have different types of consumers that are using for different things. But you know, for those mental health, you know, uh, mental health concerns, there's, um, there's a lot of that um, overlap there. So still a minority of cannabis consumers, um, certainly far less than 20% there, but almost double the rate of non-cannabis consumers that um, are adopting these products. And they've barely started to become legal, right? Right. Uh, so the, we have two more questions for you. Um, mm -hmm. I know that we're we're in the early days of 2023, although I can't believe it's February. Um, <laughs> where are those? <laughs> I mean, what? And that stupid groundhog, whatever. Um, so <laughs> what what are you looking forward to this year? Ah, so or, or what scares the hell out of you this year? <laughs> I was being positive, but I don't know, yeah. maybe you're, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think that there's a lot of, there's certainly a lot of negativity spiraling around in the, you know, in the cannabis industry, you know, right now. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of challenges that are facing the market. Uh, with that being said, you know, it's, there's several things that I've got my eye on that I think are really exciting. You know, on the one side, I think that, you know, there is, a lot more brands that are coming to the understanding that they need to be much more strategic as you know they are moving forward. And there's been a bit of, I've heard it described as 
egos checked in the industry where people, you know, are now have to realize that, okay, the investment community isn't always going to come to bail you out. You have to have a profitable business model. You have to be, you know, strategic and learn how to compete with a, each other. So, you know, from someone that works, you know, with companies that are building strategies and trying to, you know, compete and develop their brands for the longer term, it's good to see people kind of focusing a lot more and, you know, really keeping their eye on the prize of what's to come, you know, from and how to build, use their limited resources today to kind of build themselves the best foundations for the future. You know, so I think that's that will be beneficial for the industry. It's exciting. You know, meanwhile, all this gloom and doom is happening, you know, in the background in terms of, you know, what's, uh, you know, the investment community in cannabis um, and, you know, the areas of opportunity available there. But, you know, meanwhile, we just keep seeing the market grow and grow and grow and grow and grow, you know, with cannabis and new states opening up their doors um, and, you know, more and more adult use markets opening up. And, you know, we're just releasing our, um, our, Reforecast in our 2023, you know, market insights report, and we've got nearly 20 states that now have legal adult use markets, which is just insane, right? Um, you know, more, more and more markets keep opening up, and while there may be a limit to those in the future, you know, we've got um, we're expecting a 32 billion dollar market in the U.S. cannabis space, you know, this year, which, you know, again, and no it, one can raise money. Ah, yeah, like I know. what? <laughs> That's just no bananas. But you know, it's like with cannabis, I've always had to kind of divorce from my mind, like the what you see in the investment community and the valuations and you know the you know the capital side of cannabis, and then what you see in the market. Because when I look at those market sizes, they just keep growing year over year over year over year. At least you know for the U.S. overall, you may see some state level you know fluctuations, and some of those more mature markets are you know are um, you know leveling off or you know certainly decelerating. But that top line just keeps going up and up and up and up. And when you're growing from a base of that size, it's really impressive. Cannabis was never going to be a hockey stick growth kind of industry where all of a sudden, you know, it's everywhere and it's, you know, billions and billions of dollars. But, you know, just year over year over year, we keep seeing that growth and just the extension of cannabis beyond, you know, the super liberal states that, you know, legalized it 10 years ago, you know, to Missouri today, it's, you know, just a huge evolution. So I think, you know, the, that level of perspective of, you know, continuing to, to remember, I think everyone in the cannabis industry, nobody should be getting into the cannabis industry for the short term. You should always be here for the longer term and kind of looking with that longer term objectives and, you know, Putting aside what's happening from the capital standpoint, that industry is sitting on some very strong foundations. <laughs> you know, we have uh, more than 17% of American consumers are using cannabis on a day, you know, are using cannabis on a regular basis. And nearly 70% are using at least five times per day. I mean, this is a massive consumer base, massive yeah. consumer base that just keeps growing and just keeps using, you know, and they're not willing, even in times of, you know, of difficult economic environments, they may be wanting to spend less on their cannabis, but they sure aren't using any less. They just want to spend less for it. So the backbone to the industry, that consumer backbone to that industry is still very strong. So, 
that's exciting to see kind of that that base hold there. And, you know, I am excited to see, you know, more companies that are starting to really try to understand that consumer base and align with that consumer base and understand that that's more of their, you know, their path to growth there than kind of chasing all of the, you know, chasing all of the um, what's outside. Um, And so that's exciting. And I certainly am excited to see what comes out of that 2023 farm bill also. So (laughs) we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that'll be a longer term play throughout the year but um, that oh, is, be watching uh, that one <laughs> yes that's um, uh, bated breath right <laughs> bethany this has been fantastic we've got one last question for you and i think you know you've hit on so many different really unique topics from you know the the new cannabinoids the the brand health um, psych- psychedelics and how all these things kind of like intermingle but you know we're storytellers at heart mm-hmm. and you know, it can be one of those subjects or it can be something that we didn't even ask you about on this podcast today. But, you know, when you open up the the Chicago Tribune or the, or the Sun Times or the New York Times or something, what's a story about the cannabis industry that you think is being undertold that you would like to see on that A1 fold um, if, if it were, you were to pick up the paper tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, I think the amount of Americans that are using cannabis is not being told, you know, and is really surprising. I think a lot of people think that the pyramid of usage is kind of reversed and that most people are using, you know, only occasionally. And, you know, there's a small number of very heavy users that are out there. But that is not what is happening in the market. And, you know, that percentage of consumers that are using on a daily or multiple times a day basis has just grown quarter over quarter over quarter over quarter over quarter and shows no sign of slowing. I mean, you know, those numbers are really striking. And I'm surprised that that's not something that's covered, you know, more frequently, um, considering how how big that <laughs> number of that monumental that yeah. number is. Um, so I think that's really under, you know, under appreciated both within, you know, the population overall, as well as within kind of the, um, you know, the industry itself and, you know, the, um, the brands who are looking to develop products for those consumers. Bethany Gomez, this has been fascinating. Managing director and co-founder of Brightfield Group. Um, your insight really um, is so unique. And, uh, we, you know, we'd love to have you on in six months just to like do a check and see what kind of where we are and what you guys are seeing. So um, we, we hope to have you back. So thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. Thanks again to our guest, Bethany Gomez of Brightfield Group for joining us this week. And as always, thanks for listening. If you want to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Or you can drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We're always looking for feedback and guest ideas. And don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcast app. That was more than one take, Jay. More than one take.